0: Good evening. I had a whole talk written yesterday that I was planning on giving tonight, and um, I had a talk written on the first foundation of mindfulness, which is still the topic for this evening, and after the Q&A last night, I was in the the staff dining area just speaking with my colleagues and they said, you know, what are you putting together for your talk? What are you talking about? And I said, I'm talking about the first foundation of mindfulness. And I said, I'm talking a lot about views and the body and I'm gonna talk a little bit about death at the end. And they said, why are you just talking a little bit about death at the end? And I said, well, I don't wanna upset the yogis. I don't want to (laughs) shake anybody too much. And they very quickly said, don't hold back. (laughs) They said, if you can't talk about death on a retreat like this, where can it be talked about? And so I really took that to heart. I really heard that. And I rewrote my talk today (laughs) to include uh, more about the last three uh, parts. in the sequence that's, that's in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the first foundation of mindfulness. So I'm really tonight going to be talking about the 32 parts of the body and the elements and mindfulness of death. And I saw in my own response, my own reluctance to speak about death, I saw the larger conditioning at work. You know, because that's so much of what we do in this culture. We'll do everything to um, not directly face, not directly speak about this shared fact of life. There's huge denial of impermanence in death, at least in this country, in the dominant culture. The... The sights and the smells and a lot of the messiness of what it means to have a human body is often hidden uh, from us. And there's such a fixation on this in this, in this uh, the dominant culture here on being young, being attractive, not aging, being upwardly mobile, being functional forever. You know, these images bombard us everywhere when you look at the billboards and the magazine covers and the online ads that you're not looking at right now but that (laughs) hasn't changed so mindfulness of the body such a rich comprehensive teaching and some of the Buddhist teachings are you know kind of pretty like metta and some are less pretty like talking about death and if you uh, believe the words of Buddha Gosa, who authored the Vish- Vishuddhimagga. He said that two of 40 meditations are always beneficial the development of friendliness and the recollection of death. So the Buddha started here with the first foundation mindfulness of body, and he knew, of course, he knew what he was doing. It's such a fundamental source of confusion and such a place where we get attached, we get tangled up in our views. You know, have you ever wondered, you know, do I have a body? Am I in the body? How does this work if I'm not my body, but this body feels real? You've probably noticed places where there's a lot of attachment to what happens to the body, but at the same time, there can be a sense of... Let me just transcend and get out of here. So there can be this simultaneous mixture of attachment and aversion um, with relation to our experience in the body, of the body. So the, the breadth of mindfulness of body includes mindfulness of breathing. We've talked a fair bit about that mindfulness of postures, sitting, standing, walking and lying down, mindfulness of um, activities, moving with full attention, as well as anatomical parts, elements and a corpse in decay. So that's a huge chunk when we say mindfulness of body, all that it really includes is, is quite a bit. This is a quote from the Dhammapada. I'm gonna use the she pronoun, we could just as easily put in he, or they. Simply talking a lot does not maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although she's heard next to nothing, sees the Dhamma through her body, she's the one who maintains the Dhamma. So the message is that seeing the Dhamma, seeing the truth of things, not just conceptually, but experientially, through the body, with the body, That's where the dhamma is maintained. That's where the dhamma is lived. And it makes sense because these bodies sitting here, this is the location of where we wake up in a certain sense. It's the location of where our realization is embodied in the world. As I speak about mindfulness of body, I'm so aware of the power of visual perception, the power of seeing. And so often we, we live the great deal of our lives cut off from deeper embodied experiences. It's as if we trade in our actual experience of the body for the image of it, both in terms of our own experience and in terms of how we relate to one another. This visual perception is such a strong force in terms of how we put things together in our minds. And often we will take just the visual perception as the reality when in truth there's all these bodily formations happening in every moment. There's a whole bunch of different mental formations going on and very often we may not sense deeply beneath the skin unless the body's in pain. Very often, it's a training to sense more deeply what is the actual experience in my big toe or in my earlobe or in my wrist. So this, this practice, as you know, is moving from the concept of body to the direct experience of pressure or heat or melting or feeling feeble. shaky, tender. The 32 parts of the body is really what makes up the physical aspect of our experience, our physical existence and the way that it's languaged is a little different from how it might be if the Buddha were alive teaching today and I'd like to read this to you. It's parts, parts of the body. In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. So if you're having a Vipassana romance, (laughs) I hope that one helps you out. (laughs) It's quite a way of languaging it, isn't it? And the the list actually doesn't include doesn't include all the organs, for example, the the brain's not in there. but the the list starts with the kind of more solid outer parts and goes into what might be known as the uh, attention becomes more and more subtle. And these parts of the body can be contemplated. You could spend a whole sitting. I'm not recommending this for this retreat, but, In time, if this is the practice that one is undertaking, a whole sitting could be spent contemplating the lining of the stomach or the kidneys. Or a sitting could be spent contemplating all of these um, pieces, these parts of the body together. So one way of the Buddhist teachings, you know, is taking a concept, taking something that we take to be one thing and breaking it down into individual parts. That's what this is doing. And another Way of teaching is really opening to understand the relationship that exists, the interconnectedness that nothing can exist independently. So you could play with in walking meditation. You know how it is to sense the bones for a walking period, to really sense the the density, the firmness of the bones moving through space, or how it is to sense the flesh and really the feeling of the air against the flesh as the body stands and moves through space. Sometimes the parts of the body are taught as a way to kind of cut through craving or attachment to the body and that, that teaching has its place traditionally. But generally, I feel that it's not so helpful to to take an attitude of disgust toward the parts of the body, but really to inquire, to bring in a quality of interest, of investigation. To appreciate the bodies sitting here. It's These bodies are miracles when you really think about it. Life appears from what we know, and I think we just know the very tip of the iceberg, but... Life appears to have been born three and a half billion years ago in the oceans. These bodies are products of evolution. And the bacteria, bacteria invented so much of the systems that that sustain us today, fermentation and photosynthesis. There are more bacteria in your gut right now than there are people who have ever lived on this planet. How's that for interdependence? <laughs> so it's a piece to just play with. How does it shift your bu- view if you consider yourself as a medium-sized mammal? If you consider that your skeleton has been formed by 500 million years of continual adaptation. We're part of this ongoing process of evolution and and here we sit thinking that that we own these bodies. It's a a practice to know the experience of body not so much as our own but body as growing out of the life that has preceded us. How does that change your view to consider yourself sitting here as the product of three and a half billion years of life? Millions and millions of years of evolution just to allow your, your skull to encase your brain in an upright way. And how does this shift the way you might view the life around you? How does this shift the way you might think of a blue whale or a green turtle or a California condor. And think about the carrots that were on the salad for lunch. Some of you probably had carrots on your salad like I did and there's water in those carrots. And we eat the carrots and we chew them up and, you, you know, when does the water in the carrot stop being part of a carrot and start, start being part of your body? And where is that molecule of water before it was in the carrot? <laughs> Things are changing so quickly when we look closely in the experience of body. A few more facts here in the human body. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. (laughs) Every person has a unique tongue print. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. (laughs) And it takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That's from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times, the DNA. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about a pound and a half a year. So that means by 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. We don't need to think about that here. (laughs) The body uh, replaces a new skeleton every seven years. And 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to the sentence. So at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because our bodies are made of atoms. So if we start thinking we are our body, what is it exactly that we're talking about? Elements. Elements is another part of the teaching of the first foundation. We've spoken a little bit about this, the elements of earth and water and fire and air. I'm just going to say a little bit more. And it's not important to figure out what element your experience, what category it fits into. That could just take you all the way into lots of papancha. But this just gives, gives a framework for understanding our experience as phenomena natural phenomena. Earth element is really the element of solidity, of pressure. In walking meditation, when you take a step and, and there's a awareness of the sensations of the heel and then the ball of the toe coming into contact, the feeling of pressure, that's the earth element. And the water element is has to do with cohesion in the body the quality of liquid, the, the water element is moisturizing your eyes right now, wetting your tongue right now. Water element is part of what allows our joints to move. And fire, the fire element has to do with temperature, has to do with the warmth that it takes to allow digestion to happen the changes between how you feel when you're in the hall here and when you go, go outside in this warm, warm air. And the air element has to do with motion. The air element is, is present with the cycling of the breath, with the presence of circulation, with the blood pumping. I was talking with Bonnie and she reminded me that many indigenous ceremonies are organized around the elements. You'll see a conscious connection with each of the elements in indigenous ceremony because relationship with these forces points us to, points, points our understanding to knowing the human experience as one of nature. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the presence of the elements, pretty much everything, we, we offer internal and external. Mindfulness. So the elements can be known in our body, but we also know them outside of our body. We know the sun as fire, and we know the earth that we step upon, obviously, as earth. Gas and pond and the oceans of this planet as water. And the atmosphere, gravity, as part of air. So again, nothing to think too much about, but just having a larger context for how you are relating to the experience of body. But mostly I actually wanna talk about death. And um, Maranasati is the Pali word, mindfulness of death. In, in the Satipatthana Sutta, charnel ground meditation is part of what is recommended. Corpse, it's actually, it's not languaged in that way. It's languaged as being um, with a corpse in decay. And that was practiced by bringing the, the monks and nuns to the charnel grounds. And um, when I consider the traditional charnel ground meditations, my sense is that they were supposed to be impactful my sense is that they weren't part of what was recommended to keep everybody in their cozy little containers. Supposed to kind of shake us. In ancient India, and I think still in India some today, you know, charnel grounds are places where bodies are taken to be burned. And poor people who couldn't afford or can't afford the fuel for the burning, the families of the deceased, the bodies will be there much, much longer and go through a whole process of decomposition. And as I was considering this, something that really strikes me is the life of the Buddha and where he came from. And he's going and hanging out in charnel grounds because he came from such a privileged upbringing. You know, his, his life as a boy and as a young man was protected from being exposed to basically anything un- unpleasant. He had a life filled with sense indulgence, with sense pleasure. And he chose, as we know, to leave that life. Because it, wasn't apparent to, it was apparent to him that it wasn't in support of his highest happiness. And he went of his own accord to practice with, uh, with dying in this way. And he instructed his followers to do this. He's instructing us to do this. And you might just take a moment to see if there's elements of his story that apply to you in your life. The ways that your life might be protected from knowing this part of the human experience. I uh, spoke just a few words in my last Dharma talk about being with a loved one in their dying process this fall in the month of September. And the person I was with that month was my mother, my beloved mother, Chris Rogers. She died on September 17th. She had uh, endometrial cancer and she had a very aggressive form of endometrial cancer and the way it progressed was atypical, which is part of why she died fairly quickly because they missed, the the people taking care of her missed that she had a a large two-inch tumor growing on the inside of her femur because that's not the typical progression of that kind of cancer. That's not the typical way that that it spreads. And so I spent Uh, Month in Fargo, North Dakota. I am from. I was born and raised in Fargo, like the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully, you haven't figured that out by now. Depending on (laughs) if my accent is playing in or not, but um, it was such. It was such a great teaching for me to spend the last three weeks of her life with her and to be with her in a very intimate way through the unfoldment of her journey with cancer. And I'd like to share some of this with you because it's, it's so wonderfully alive for me. And this is really not talking about thinking about death, but it's really speaking more from a place of being in uh, a very close contact with the process of death and dying. And those of you who have been, who have spent time with the dying might know how it is to be in what Stephen Levine calls a death field. It's a, uh, it's a, the words death-field do describe something to me because it's like this time being with my mother has felt in some ways like an altered reality, but in some ways like the reality. And the death-field doesn't just go away when someone dies. You get to hang out in it for a while. So I'm very much in that place, and there's, there's nowhere I would rather be because there are so many gifts that are alive in my experience from from this month of my life. And I really feel like being with the experience of dying so deeply has touched me that I, I feel like a different person. I actually feel more awake and I feel more immediacy in my experience as a result of that time. It was like being being in this experience of the death of my mother was literally like staring my own, my own mortality in the face. My mother, if you could see a picture of her when she was my age, you would probably think it was me. We have the, very much the same facial structure. And so just being with her in this process, noticing the changes, it was as if I was looking at myself in a certain way. And not only was I looking my mortality in the face, It's being with dying in a direct way, brings us face to face with the three characteristics. There's nothing more final. There's nothing more real. Death isn't really up to us for the most part, but it's this process of nature that at a certain point is irreversible. So part of the contemplation on death and the real opportunity for it is Often, in my experience and with many people that I've worked with over the years, there's a sense of opening or tenderizing that may emerge, not always, definitely not always, but that may emerge in the experience not just of death, but also the experience of birth. There can be a sense that the stories of who we are that separate us might begin to loosen a little bit, to fall away. We can sense our, our shared humanity and the common trajectory that everyone sitting in this room has been born and everyone sitting in this room, death is assured. What do they say the leading cause of death is? Birth? <laughs> um, <laughs> so... I was I was with a friend who just had a baby and she was telling me about her experience driving home from the hospital with her newborn baby and this woman's not a practitioner and she just said, Erin, it was like I was seeing everything for the first time. She said, I, just, I felt like I was driving down my street for the first time. She said, I felt like I was driving into my driveway for the first time. She was seeing everything with this freshness and this newness and... The truth is that kind of relating is available to us with mindful awareness all of the time when we open our eyes and when we're actually present. But the process of having a baby for her had just cut through so much of the way her way of seeing was from the habit patterns and wasn't really fresh and present and letting in new information. And the process of dying when death is from a terminal illness is a, is a process of really going inward in a very, very deep way. That's part of why this practice is such beneficial preparation for, for our own death. This is a, a few words from Kathleen Dowling Singh who wrote a wonderful book, The Grace in Dying. And this relates to death from terminal illness. She says, with terminal illness, the dying process, the one seat chooses us. Dying picks the pillow for us. Terminal illness in effect reverses the momentum of our lives. We have lived for so long believing that we had to have what we desire in order to do as we desire so that we can think what we desire, so as to enable us to be as we desire. Can you relate? Terminal illness, which goes against every desire of the mental ego, takes away anything that in the past or future we might have. It brings an end to our ability to do, throwing into chaos our ability to think in our accustomed and familiar ways and forcing us to be. Terminal illness demands of us, don't just do something, sit there. Terminal illness does this most profoundly, but we all know how it is, right? When we're sick, and there's that sense of much as we would love to go do something, what's asked of us is just to be. In this Theravadin tradition, the, the traditional reflection, I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. All that is beloved and pleasing to me will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Just notice what happens inside as you hear those words. It's good to be in relationship with those words. So, this process of death is just so terrifying to our idea of ourselves, to the ego. And I think this is in part because we can, you know, we can do everything we can do to set it up so that our death is as peaceful, as painless as possible, and most of what happens really isn't up to us. You know, conditions are such this arises, it just could not be more apparent than in the dying process. With my mother, I didn't really have much of a struggle with the fact that she was dying. My practice had really prepared me well for that. But what I did have a struggle with was some of how it happened. And I just saw so clearly it didn't matter what I thought should be. It didn't matter what I thought should be done differently. Conditions are such this arises. Almost everything that was happening had completely been set into place. It was a process of nature. So for me, that just invited a deeper and deeper and deeper, letting go, which is part of the gift of being with the experience of death in the death field, is seeing more clearly where we're clinging, where we're holding on. So my mother was diagnosed with her um, cancer in June of 2013, and she had surgery, and We really thought it was done. That's what we heard. It was all clear. It was all over. Great. She had surgery and she had some chemotherapy. And then last October, just over a year ago, was when they found the tumor in her femur and she was given six to nine months to live. And, um, excuse me, that's not true. In June, this past June, she was given six to nine months to live. And so she entered hospice. The very good people, very good people with hospice that took good care of her. And like some of you, perhaps, my relationship with my mother has been a complex one. It hasn't always been a walk in the park at all. It's been an area where I've done a lot of work. And when she was diagnosed, um, for both of us, really, it just became so clear that there wasn't room for the small stuff. It became so clear that when we really got down to it, what mattered is that we loved each other. I have a tiny bit of, w- of um, wishing that that could have happened earlier, but it actually couldn't have happened earlier. It took the imminence of death to wake up that possibility for us in our relationship. And so my mother, with her diagnosis, she once she realized that she was dying, that death wasn't too terribly far away, these changes started happening in her. She tenderized, she became the kind of mother who would kiss me on the lips and say, I love you, sweetheart. It's like, wow, this is different, this is new, this is beautiful. And it was so um, really amazing what happened in the process of being together. in in her sickness and eventually in her death because the space between us just became one of so much love and clarity. It was unobstructed, unimpeded. Their personality view wasn't getting in the way so much. I think it was because we spent just a lot of time being in presence together, a lot of time being quiet together. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine how I would have shown up without my Dharma practice but I wouldn't have shown up with that kind of presence. There's a poem by a few words by Rumi that explains really how, how I felt with her and maybe you can relate when um, conditions are such that, that this arises. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase, each other, doesn't make any sense. We know that place. Sometimes we know that place with others, sometimes we know that place out in nature. So that was, that's the beautiful stuff, and then there's the delusion. Things were changing quickly for my mother, and as I'm telling this story, I'm I'm telling it, um, you know, how it's presented in my experience. But these are these are collective, these are universal pieces in terms of the opportunities with death, in terms of the presence of delusion. Um, things were changing for my mother. I was out at BCBS in August with Bonnie and Brian and some others, and my mother kept calling me, and I answered the phone every time she called because she was so sick and she said, Erin, I I can't put on my shirt. And she said, my hand's not working very well. And the family story was that it was a side effect of her medications. It was just a side effect and once the medications changed, everything would be okay. And um, it wasn't that, it was that the cancer had gone to her brain and it was affecting the motor centers in her brain. And um, she called me and she said, will you come be with me? She said, I'm afraid. She said, I'm really afraid and I want you to come be with me. Um, she said, you're the person who can help me uh, with my fear. And she wanted me there as her daughter, but she really, what she really wanted was the presence of the Dhamma, the presence of that kind of understanding. And um, so I told the family I was going to be coming home and they said, it's not a good time. They said, why don't you come later in September? They said, we're moving furniture and we're going to go camping this weekend. That was really what was believed. And it's just this, wow. I mean, wow, that level of delusion. No wonder we get uncomfortable talking about death. There's not much of a place for it. It is difficult. It's difficult to open to the truth of impermanence, ourselves and those that we love. It's difficult and there's tremendous um, jewels. I think about how it would have been for my mother earlier on to have been surrounded by people who were really practicing with impermanence, who were developing a relationship to death in their own experience. I, I wonder how that holding would have been for her. So it was really a great honor that she asked me to be with her. I'm so glad. And um, when I arrived there, she was in a a hospital bed in the TV room that she she didn't get out of. And um, I was there for three weeks for that part of the process. And because I'm talking about the first foundation, I want to just describe a little bit of what happened around the elements, the elements in her body. The, um, the earth element, the earth element, There's a, in the dying process, many of you know who have spent time with people dying, the body goes through a kind of a dissolution of the elements. And my mother, as she was laying there day after day, weeks after week. She, she'd always been a person who was a mover, who would get up and do things and zip around all over the place, and would kind of have the accelerator on at a red light. And um, the body became so heavy, the body became so heavy and um, it was so clear as she was laying there that over time, you know, it was, yes it was my mother's legs, it was my mother's arms, but it was really the presence of the heaviness of the earth element. These were, were tissues. And her body became so heavy, her heart was beating, her heart and lungs were quite strong until the end. The body was so heavy, the heart was beating and I could see her heart beat through the top of her head. That's how heavy her body became. You know, I can't see your heartbeats through the top of your head because your tissues are awake and here and functioning to a certain degree. In the fire element, her her uh, temperature started going up and down. There were these spontaneous times of getting quite cool and and sweating, getting quite warm, getting fevers as the centers in the brain that control body temperature shut down and her her hands and her feet started getting quite cool the last days before she died the circulation was really being focused around you know the the organs around the core water the water element Her joints, if we moved her joints even a fraction, even a tiny millimeter, it it was excruciating. There was no lubrication left in the joints. And the mouth became very dry. The throat became very, very dry. We took good care of it. And the air element, when I arrived, she was already having these long uh, pauses between breaths but in the last week of her life, there were probably 30 30 to 45 second pauses between breaths that might not sound like very long. But if you really imagine each breath taking 30 or 45 seconds before your next in-breath, that's a long time. I sat with her over and over again, just wondering over and over again if there would be another in-breath. And one time there wasn't. (laughs) on the morning of September 17th, there just wasn't another in-breath. So that's where death, it's not like, to me, death is is not so much an event as it is that something stops happening. There just wasn't an in-breath. And we washed my mother's body, we washed my mother's body. Such a tone of ceremony, such a tone of care. And it was so clear at that point, and this is my churnal ground meditation that I'm telling you about. At that point, what what was being washed, it was not my mother at all. What was being washed was the body. All the parts of the body, the elements in the body. What was being washed was a body, that was it. And through all of this, my mother, had a radiance about her it was striking actually the hospice people would come in and look at her and this is you know frago north dakota just a different it's its, its own culture <laughs> believe me and um and uh there was a radiance these hospice people come in and just say wow your mother is radiant this is even as her body's shutting down um frank Postesky describes this kind of beautifully. One way of of sensing this, he says, when I'm holding the hand of someone very old or a dying patient, I notice that their skin is almost transparent. It's as if their being becomes that way as well, transparent. It's as if the wind could blow right through them and there isn't much that's obscuring who they actually are. In the aging process, we can't sustain the energy that's required to maintain our self-image. It can't be propped up anymore. So aging, sickness, and even death are conducive to our opening. It's vital that we reflect on this and reflect that back to the person who's aging, all of us, not in some imposing way, but simply by appreciating it. So that was really a lot of of how it was, was just a sense of reflecting back the deepest nature to the extent that I was able. And um, there's no way the mind, there's no way the conceptual mind can really fully wrap itself around this mystery. The conceptual mind, for me, really had no place for it, yet, being there was exactly where I wanted to be. We are called to participate oftentimes in these passages because they reveal to us so much about the nature of our lives. This is from Zen teacher Jan Chosen Bayes. She says, and this is what we're doing here. She says, if we practice stepping into the unknown moment by moment, hour by hour, year by year, millions of times, then death is just the next step into the unknown. It loses its terror. Isn't that a huge part of what we're doing here? Practicing being in the unknown, moment by moment being available for life as it presents itself. Cultivating this great capacity of mindful awareness to be with experience in a way that over time, experience is something that um, that we don't need to fear so much. So the idea, the idea of dying, the idea of um, contemplation of of our own death often is one that brings a lot of fear. We get scared that our bodies will have pain, that our bodies won't perform well. And um, it's interesting, considering the notion of death, it's often this idea that, that we'll will die at a later time and i th- i think that it's often the idea of death and all that we build up around it that is so scary these practices when joseph was teaching last night about imagining as a not a man but yeah imagining as if the step he was taking was his last step there's a particular kind of immediacy in that isn't there it's different than making a bucket list it's different than okay if i die in 6 months how's it going to be for me now you know, where it's an idea out there. The practice is really coming face to face with um, the immediacy. Because death will happen in a moment. Death will happen in present time. And so the death awareness practice is really part of what allows us to begin this process of letting go, to begin to realize the third noble truth, to begin to consider using some of this lifetime to prepare for the final letting go. And it's this truth of impermanence that, for me, is part of why life is so precious, so dear, this precious human life, human birth. so serious in here as I talk about this, it's a little like that. <laughs> but it, it, um, there's no reason for it not to be an ordinary part of our lives in a particular sense when we, when we come forward and we speak about this part of our lives. Um, my mother taught elementary school, she was a school teacher, and she did not consider herself to be a spiritual person. She actually kind of ran the other way. And I don't know that she fully understood what I do for a living until the end. Because in the last few months of her life, she got very interested in Thich Han and in Pema Chodron. And she called me and she said, Erin, I think you know something about this. Could you record some meditations for me? <laughs> it was very dear. And I said, I'd love to, Mom. <laughs> so I recorded some meditations for her and she used them. And... Um, she realized, yeah, this is what my daughter does. <laughs> and uh, in the process of dying, her process of dying, again, not being a practitioner, what was so amazing to me is that she, she, you know, she went through a lot. Suffering was part of it. It wasn't all there was to it, but physical suffering was part of it for her. She never said a single word that wasn't kind. I mean, I really think about the parami there. I, if I could only aspire at the end of my life to have the kind of kindness that my mother had that would be in many ways a life well lived. And she said, she said a number of things that let me know that she was in this process of passage and that there was a measure of peace. And um, I'm going to share a few of these with you. This is just part part of the mystery and part of the place in our being that knows how to be born and knows how to die. She said... One time she said, can you go to the next level? She was totally um, on morphine out of it, and then she called us, can you go to the next level? I said, I "I think so, Mom, I think you can. She said, I'm going to the next level. She said, just like leaves falling, because the leaves had just started to fall from the trees. She said, is the refrigerator all cleaned out? (laughs) said, is the Carl Pact? Are we good to go here? She said, I feel like I'm going on an exotic trip, but I don't know where. And she would sometimes say, and this is, again, so drugged. I mean, the being on a morphine drug trip is part of the experience of this death field. And um, she sometimes would say, hello, hello, mom, what's going on? They're calling me. Like, it was like she was answering her phone. And I said, who's calling you, Mom? New friends. New friends. <laughs> and then she said, make new friends, keep the old, one is silver, the other is gold. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> I think she knew she was being funny. It was an old campfire song. <laughs> really something else. Um, so, somebody, a teacher who knows so much about the way things are, Deepa Ma, again, who I, who I shared. I shared something from Deepama in the last talk. She's a being who inspires me so deeply. And she, um, she's been, she'd been through so much in her life before she came to meditation practice. She'd been through... Uh, The death of both of her parents and the death of her husband, as well as two children, that's a huge amount of loss. And she was very, very physically sick. She was like heartbroken. She was so sick. And she asked, you know, she she knew she needed something. She knew she needed some kind of help. And she had this question, what can I take with me when I die? And she looked around at her dowry and her silk series and the daughter that she had remaining. And she decided to go to the meditation center to find something there that she could take with her when she died. And this is, um, a family member asked her, um, came to her for advice when, when um, the son of this person had died. And, and this is what this person says. Sudipti so says, when my son died in, 18, in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I haven't forgotten. Today your son is gone from this world. Why are you shocked? And this is from Deepama, who is absolutely the embodiment of great compassion. She says, why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your daughter is impermanent. Your money is impermanent, your building is impermanent, everything is impermanent. There's nothing that's permanent. When you're alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property, this is my building, this is my car, this car belongs to me. But when you're dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent that's some strong, those are some strong words, aren't they, to say to someone who had just lost their son? But what she's not saying, she's not saying don't grieve. She's not saying don't feel sad. She's not saying don't let your tears flow. The essence of what she's saying is why are you shocked? Really, really um, quite a teaching. And so being here and practicing in this way is is um, such an incredible opportunity to live more fully. Because the tragedy really isn't in the dying; it's in not living fully. And you know, I'm I'm really preaching to the choir. All of you that are here have made a conscious decision to be here, and. Um, have made a conscious decision to practice in this way and look so closely at the truth of impermanence, the flow that um, is the nature of our lives. And may you use this as a way to um, be here more fully, to live with more intention and more clarity and more love. I'll close with a few words from Mary Oliver about impermanence and about this life, Mary Oliver says, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing Your life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So let's just sit for a few moments together.